Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It is that time of the week again where we celebrate the life of a great Australian sportsperson on This Is Your Sporting Life. Good to have you with us. And today we celebrate the life of a man who played 244 games for the Navy Blues, a four-time All-Australian, Carlton captain, State of Origin star, and he's also had a few other roles in football. His name is Andrew McKay, and he joins me in the studio. Andy, good to see you. Thanks, Pete. Great to be here. How are you travelling? Yeah, going well. Going well. I'm uh, enjoying uh, my time out of footy at the moment, which is really nice. So what are you doing now? Well, actually, uh, I had a bit of a holiday after I left Carlton at the end of the season last year. And then I've been doing a little bit of consulting work, uh, some of it that, some of that for the AFL, some for uh, a couple other people. Um, but funnily enough, I actually start a new job next week. And that is? That's in the agribusiness. So going back to my veterinary skills, going yes. back to my farming background, um, which I'm really looking forward to, a little uh, agribusiness called Zamira. Okay. Now, why did you leave Carlton in the first place? Because you, you're so heavily identified with that football club in so many ways. Yeah, I... I Certainly, um, it's been a big part of my life, as you're alluding to, you know, playing there for 11 years and uh, then had a brief stint away and then uh, went back there, obviously, for seven and a half years. But I'd been there for, you know, the the bulk of the 23 years I've been in Melbourne. Um, There's been a lot of change there. There's certainly a change there again uh, last year. And I thought the time was right for me to get some experience somewhere else. Um, And I think probably the time was right for them to, to have a, a new face in, in that chair as well. So did you leave on good terms? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So it was very amicable. Um, you know, I gave them plenty of notice. I knew around June that I was going. Um, I told them in July and you know, gave them plenty of time to, to find a replacement, which is great for them. Is it harder, Andy, to be at a football club when you are not consistently winning? I mean, the day-to-day operations of a football club, I guess the nuts and bolts are much the same. But it's the football club is all judged on the W's in the column, isn't it? It is indeed. Yeah, it's a win-loss industry, as we uh, yeah. keep getting told. And it is. It's a, it becomes more of a grind. You don't get the reward for effort because it, even though you, uh, a team may not be winning all the time, they're not trying any less than the team that is winning all the time. Um, and in actual fact, they're probably trying more ways to to go about it um, to try and get a few more wins on the board. So it, it does become a grind. You need that that uh, rejuvenation of wins uh, to keep you stimulated. Um, so that does play a part, and I'm, it, it, I'm sure it plays a part on the players' minds as well. As an experienced football person, what do you do to keep the spirits buoyed of young men who are going through that and who are constantly reminded of the fact that the team is not winning. You've been around footy for a long time. How do you keep that morale up amongst a footy club that's not winning games? Yeah, highlight the little wins. Um, so if a passage of play has been fantastic or some individuals have been doing really well, you highlight those and, and celebrate those. Um, but not forgetting the fact that 
you need to win as well. You know, that you don't want to get into the habit of having honourable losses um, because it ends up being a mindset in a, in a sense. So you're very um, cognizant of that and unaccepting of, of honourable losses. You need to win. And so you, you've got to keep people up. And it's, it's, around, it's about the coaches and the staff around the players that have to be up. If they're dragging their knuckles along the ground in a moping around the football club, then that's going to reflect on the playing group. They, those staff need to be up and about to get the players up and about. Honourable losses is one of those phrases that goes with potential. It can be <laughs> something that is promising, but it can also be a dirty word at times. Yeah, that's right. Too many of them is very dirty. Yeah. Um, and as you say, we're in a win-loss industry and there's expectation from members and stakeholders that uh, that you win games. And particularly coming from Carlton where it's a, a recognised as a big club um, and there's been enormous expectation in the past there, um, that they are... Very thirsty for for wins. I don't want to. I don't want you to tell tales out of school because you've left the football club now. But you know what it's like. the The talk starts, and the talk has started over the past couple of weeks about Brendan Bolton, and it it seems like it's a bit of a you know stone at the top of the hill. And by the time it gathers all the moss all the way down, um, it becomes this huge boulder. What's it like within a football club when something like that is happening outside of the club? Do you just shut yourself off to it? Yeah, it's noise. It's certainly outside noise, and you, you do your best to ignore outside noise. But uh, the jungle drums do get louder and louder. Um, I've been there. Uh, when I, while I was there, obviously Brett Ratton was coach initially. Uh, he left, and uh, Mick was in there, and he left. So I've ha- had uh, three or four coaches, four including Johnny Barker, who was interim for a while. So you, the, the drums do, do start beating, and it's not just the coach, it's the other staff as well, and they get louder and louder, but you've got to try and ignore that and got to try and shut that out. The people in the place at the time at any football club, if that white noise is going on outside, they have to concentrate on what they have to do. They've got, they can't control that. They've just got to do the best possible thing that they can by the football club, and that is work to the utmost of their ability to get wins on the board and, and develop their players. You might not be at the club anymore, but you still bleed navy blue. Do you think that they are heading in the right direction? There appear to be some signs, but are the signs as strong as you would like them to be at the moment? Yeah, I think I think um, they are. On, I know they are. On, they are on the right path. Um, they're heading in the right direction, as you say. They've got some really good young players. Um, they need some more uh, players for some depth. Um, they need to. You know, develop the players they've got there. You know, we've got uh, a number of really good players between you know year one and year three, year four. I'm a real believer that you don't you don't actually get a really good player until you've probably played about fifty to seventy to eighty games of football. Then then they start to be very good players and they can actually influence games. Our players aren't that quite there yet, even the ones that have been there for three or four years. But they they're nearly there. You're seeing signs from a Jacob Wiedering, for example, who's who's got uh, backs of some good form this year. Mm. Um, you know, we need uh, Sammy Petreski Seaton to, to start stepping up, even though he's only been there um, a, a couple of years now, going to his third year. It's time for him to um, develop and, and start influencing games because he's got the potential to do that. Um, and there's various others that are, that are going to do the same. You know, we look at Charlie Kerno last year, for example, and you know, he had a really good year last year, but... You know what? He's a very, very young man, a very, very young footballer, um, and we just place enormous expectation on these guys' shoulders. And I'm not making excuses for them. Um, 
you know, Sam Walsh is new to the club this year and he's had a you know, really, really great start to, to his playing career. But the trouble with that is the expectation. Um, so all of a sudden people are expecting him to win games and he's an 18-year-old boy that's, been, that's yeah. played four games. So it's, you need to develop them, get some good game time into them, uh, get some more players in the door and they'll be okay. I walked past Paddy Cripps in the Virgin Lounge the other night as the, uh, the plane was heading back from the Gold Coast after that loss that has been much discussed. And I'm not short, but I felt like a midget when I walked past him. In your time in footy, where does he rank amongst the great young talents that you've seen come through the game? Oh, he's a beauty. He's, a, he's exceptional. Um, I was lucky enough to play with some reasonable midfielders as well. Yeah. Uh, Greg Williams, Craig Bradley and the like. But um, a different builds, different, different build, styles. And it's a different game now too. Yeah. Um, Patrick would have been super back then um, with his hands and his ability to win the ball. And that's one of the things that hasn't changed. You need to be able to win the ball. So um, you need to be able to run a lot better than we used to be able to run. <laughs> um, but you need to be able to win the ball still. And Patrick has a, uh, an enormous ability to be able to do that. And probably the best in the competition in tight. Um, and for a six foot five or whatever he is, um, very, very large man to be able to do that is extraordinary. Um, he's working on his running capacity. Um, he's he's uh, getting better and better at that because... Teams do spread away from stoppages, and he needs to be able to um, combat that. He's a natural leader, which is what Carlton needs, um, and he's getting better and better at doing that. Um, so I'm looking forward to him just get it, just improving that uh, on-field leadership over the next number of years while he's while he's at the club. One thing I've always wondered, Andy, and you can probably answer this: it seems as though when coaches all of a sudden find out that they're on the monitor that they stop what they're saying or they alter what they're saying. Is is there a procedure in the box that someone tells the coach that he's actually on camera and just you might want to be careful? Um, I think they can see. They've got a number of monitors in the um, in the box anyway. But um, as, you, as you allude to, uh, Boltz has the, the trick of putting his hand over his mouth. And I notice, uh, I think it was uh, John Longmire over the weekend or the weekend before was doing the same. So um, it, I think a lot of the coaches, they keep a straight face and uh, let their mouth move and then put the, put the hand in front of the mouth so no one can work out whether they're angry or, or happy or, or, or saying whatever. I think we can work out whether they're angry <laughs> or not. <laughs> I was trying to play that down. <laughs> uh, time to take a break. We've spoken a lot about Carlton. We'll talk about your links with Carlton and where the journey began for you when we come back on the other side of the break. Andy McKay is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives and we'll have more with Andy after the break. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. What a pleasure to have Andrew McKay as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. The town of Lucendale in South Australia, um, quite a famous town, not only because you were there, but I think a fellow called Sandy Roberts was at Lucendale for a while, wasn't he? He was indeed, um, and very close to me. Um, Sandy's father managed one of our properties uh, for a long, long time. So a little bit of family history here, Pete. We're from, um, originally we're from 100 miles uh, northwest of Port Augusta, up near a place called uh, Kimber. And that was saltbush country, mm. um, real cattle grazing country. It rains every couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> and, and mum's family had a farm down in the, 
South East of South Australia at Lucendale. And it was up for sale and when we were very young. Um, actually, it, the place next door was up for sale and mum's parents died. And so mum, dad and my brother and I went down to have a look. I think I was four or three or four at the time. And it rains down at Lucendale a bit. And uh, dad said, well, not moving down here. It's too wet. And uh, within probably a six-month, 12-month period, they'd bought next door and moved down. Mm. So, um, and lo and behold, Sandy's mum and dad and Sandy lived on the property that we bought. So um, we uh, had a couple of Christmases with uh, Sandy when literally I was five, six, seven years old at that stage. And I still remember playing uh, cricket on the front lawn of the house with uh, Sandy bowling and I was batting and he, he wouldn't remember, I'm sure. But um, So I've always had that connection and then I didn't see him for well, 30 years probably yeah. until I came to... Um, well, since I've been in, well, I came to Melbourne when I was 22, but I didn't say run into Sandy for another you know, five or six years after that. So um, it was interesting. What was the population of Lucendale? Well, I think it was 200 at the time, but I'm sure it shrunk since. <laughs> 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 and we were, you know, most of the population, to be honest, is in, in the farming land around the town. Um, but like any other country town, it's, um, the heartbeat is the football netball club, mm. um, and very proud history of, uh, you know, country football at Lucendale, which was fantastic. And I had the privilege of playing with them for a couple of years, um, which I loved. And they were, funnily enough, they were um, the Carlton jumper, but with LFC rather than CFC. Right. So, yeah, ironic. Being on the property at Lucendale, was that where your affinity with animals began? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we uh, ran, well, what did we run? We ran, ran seven, 8,000 head of sheep. Oh, actually, no, so. 14,000 head of sheep and about 2,000 head of cattle. Um, so a lot of, lot of stock. And um, so during the you know, weekends or once I went to boarding school back in, uh, back at home on holidays, we obviously worked the, worked the sheep and the cattle and things. And I, I did have an affinity, and I still do have an affinity with the animals. Um, and I, it definitely started on the farm. Being a South Australian boy, did you have an SANFL team and a VFL team? Yeah, well, we got two channels at Lucendale, Channel 8 and um, the ABC. And Channel 8 was... Was that about Gambia? Yeah, it was a local yeah. SES 8 station. And that gave us uh, the big replay on Sunday uh, with the VFL. So Dad followed Geelong, so I, I naturally uh, went in his footsteps. Um, funnily enough, my older brother didn't. He actually barracked for Carlton. Um, and so... I always, you know, follow the Nankervises and, and the Brunzes of the world and, you know, love watching the big replay on uh, on Sundays. And we had the world of sport on Sunday morning. Um, but funnily enough, we didn't watch a whole lot of footy. You know, we were Nord supporters as well in the SNFL. Again, Dag was a Nord supporter, so we, we followed Nord. And Nord got quite successful at that time too, through that through that age period. And, that, you know, Michael Aish, you know, mm. Um, was was the star then, and we all loved watching watching Aishi. Um and so I probably watched more SNFL games than I did VFL games. And to be honest, I'd see uh, three games a year, I reckon, of SNFL games. Right. And so that's how many VFL games I watched. I probably watched one or two. I watched the highlights basically. SNFL wise, you nearly captured their big award, the McGarry Medal, and the bloke who beat you. Was a reasonable player. Yeah, he was pretty good. Um, it was, what was his name? 
Yeah, a guy by the name of Nathan Buckley. He could play a bit. Yeah. Um, after I left school, I, I didn't really know what to do with my life or with myself. I wanted to go back on the farm. And um, my, one of my best mates who went to another school, he said, why don't we go and have a kick at under-19s at Glenelg? Because we were zoned to Glenelg. He was from Narracourt, neighbouring town. And I said, yeah, right, let's do that. Um, we're going to have a kick, have some fun. So got halfway through pre-season, got our year 12 marks back, and he, he failed. And so he went back to school. And <laughs> so he left me at under-19s. <laughs> and um, so we had a um, year of under-19s, and we, we had a good, good, good year, and we actually got to the grand final. We wouldn't believe it. People were 10 goals up at half-time. We lost by six goals. I'm really? not quite sure, quite sure how you do that, but um, yeah, we were playing Nord. And anyway, so after that, I went uh, back home for a couple of years, and then Glenelg asking me back over those two years, and I thought in the end, you know what? Let's go back, and otherwise I'll continue to ask myself for the question whether I'll be able to make it at SNFL level. And so I thought, back, I'll, I'll go back. Went back to Adelaide, um, had a pre-season with Glenelg, yeah, started in the twos, uh, got in the seniors, played, I think I played oh, something like 15, 16 games that year. Second year came around, had a pretty good pre-season, but then didn't get in the team for the first couple of games, played in the twos. Someone got injured. I got in the team round three and then started to play okay. And then momentum built and confidence grew and started to play a bit better and a bit better. And then all of a sudden, you know, I got inv- invited to the uh, McGarry Medal and I thought, okay, I'll go along. Uh, a few uh, free beers and free feed. And, mm. and lo and behold, um, I came second. Now, I didn't just come second. I came second by a long way. There's a fair bit of distance yeah. between Bucks and myself, but... Um, I came second, and then I hadn't really spoken to any AFL clubs at that stage, but as soon as that um, McGarry medal count was over, and um, then they started ringing, and I, I probably spoke to 15 of the, of the clubs at the time, so most of them. Was that on your radar? If, you, if you're playing SANFL and you're alternating between the twos and the seniors, you're probably not thinking no, the big time. not at all. Not at all, Pat. I, I really didn't have an ambition to play AFL at all. As I said before, you know, the only reason I went to Glenelg was just to just to make sure that I answered that question whether I could play SNFL footy or not. Did you have a preference where you wanted to go with 15 clubs to choose from? Yeah, I did. Um, I was older. I was 22 years old. And um, I'd like to think a little bit more worldly, as worldly as a 22-year-old boy can be, um, but probably slightly more worldly than some of the 18-year-olds that get drafted. And we had a draft system back then as well. There were some clubs that were financially struggling, I thought I'd do them a favour, Pete, and um, write a few letters to uh, those those clubs. I wrote le- letters to five clubs uh, saying, just out of courtesy, if you draft me, I won't be coming, so please don't draft me. Was then, that tinkering on the outside of the rules at that stage? Well, it was interesting. I don't know whether the rules were actually written at that stage. They might have been. They were written, but I don't know how um, flimsy they were. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So, and remembering that, it's interesting, that they're AFL rules. I had nothing to do with the AFL. And so I got a letter from, I think it was Cameron Swab or someone at the time. That it was the day of the draft. And they said, uh, under AFL player rules, you're not allowed to be prejudicial to the natural course of the draft system. Therefore, you have to withdraw, withdraw your le- letters from those five clubs. And I said to my manager, who was a friend of mine at the time, I said, I won't say exactly what I said, but I said, you know what? I've got nothing to do with the AFL. I'm a country boy from Lucendale that's having a kick at Glenelg every now and then. I've got nothing to do with them. Let's leave it at that. 
what I didn't want, Pete, and due respect to all those clubs because they've gone on in leaps and bounds and won premierships and made me look really quite silly, but at the time they weren't financially viable. Well, I thought that anyway from afar. And so what I didn't want to happen is me uproot my life, come over to Melbourne, and within 12 months the club fold, and that was how naive I was, the club fold and me have to go back to South Australia. Even though I probably thought I'd be going back after a year, given I wouldn't be able to you know, match it with the, with the big boys anyway, but I thought um, I want to go to a stable club. Was it perhaps less daunting for you because you weren't so immersed in the culture that a lot of young people are before they go into a football dressing room? I think so, yeah. I hardly knew any of the players, to be honest. I knew who they were. I knew you... Gee, you like Gary Ablett in that regard, didn't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Senior. The benefit I had, I suppose, is there's a number of South Australians there, obviously, um, or certainly a couple... Um, Stephen Kernahan, Craig Bradley in particular, and then a, a few had left already, Niles and, and Motts and um, a couple others had left. So, yeah, I, I obviously knew of, of Stephen, and he was from Glenelg as well. Uh, David Kernahan was at, there at the time as well. I remember my first training session, uh, I was staying in the hotel uh, across the road. This is before I'd moved to Carlton, after I got drafted, before I'd moved over. We... South Australians uh, think that it rains a lot in Melbourne and, and give the Melbourneites a bit of stick about that. And I would wake up Saturday morning at uh, 5.30 or something. We had a 6.30 training out at, um, I think it was out near Bulleen somewhere. We'd arranged for, or the club had arranged for David Kernhan to pick me up in his little red, I think it was a little red Corolla. Walked outside and it was torrential rain, absolutely torrential rain. I thought, yeah, welcome to Melbourne. Here we go. <laughs> so uh, then, and dudes picked me up and uh, took me to training and... Um, that was uh, the start of it, and it was a it was a really really nice journey for me with those South Australians. There made it a little bit more comfortable, but embarrassingly, I didn't know anyone else. If I'd seen their faces, there's a story. Rats that rats reminds me sometimes. Uh, one of the first training sessions, Brett Ratton had been at the club for two years, and he played sixty games, I think, at the time. And um, I thought he was a new player. I thought he got drafted when I did. And I went up and shook his hand and said, oh, I'm Andrew McKay, uh, what's your name? He said, oh, Brett, Brett Ratney. He said, oh, I said, oh, yeah. have you just been drafted like me? <laughs> and he said, no, you did. I've played about 50, 60 games. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you'd remember that for a while, Rats. And that's a good attitude to have sometimes because the pressure of being an AFL player can weigh pretty heavily on a young man's shoulders. And that weight of expectation can sometimes drag you down rather than lift you up. Yeah, it can. It can. But then, then you know, most footballers are very competitive beasts and they um motivated by different things and, and uh, sometimes we are motivated by our own fears um, and we are motivated often negatively. Um, and in saying that, by saying that, I mean if someone tells you that you can't do it, you want to prove them wrong to, mm. to, to do it. And a couple of people at actually Glenelg said, oh, I don't think you'll be able to make it in that league. And I thought, eh, you know what, I might try and prove you wrong. So... Yeah. Um, even though I didn't have expectation, I thought I'd, you know, if I played 10 games, that, that was probably me making it in my eyes, even though it's not. Um, but if I can play 10, then fantastic and see what happens after that. Lo and behold, I actually, actually end up playing every game that first year, which was um, fantastic. Timing is everything in football, whether it be getting a, t- a spot in the team or winning grand finals. Timing is so important. And I arrived at a time where Carlton were on the rise, and I arrived at a time where they needed a half-back flanker uh, with some pretty other handy backmen, Peter Dean, Ange Christou, Stephen Silvani, mm. um, just to mention a couple, Michael Sexton. Um, together we had a pretty good unit, and um, I was very fortunate to land at Carlton at that time. 
Well, when you go through that list of personnel, it's not surprising that the team was challenging for a premiership and eventually won one not too long after you arrived. And we'll talk about that when we come back on the other side of the break. Andrew McKay is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Andrew McKay on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Andy, we mentioned the fact that you'd come into a very good football team, 1995. We'd probably proved it a bit later than we would have liked, uh, to be honest, Pete. My first year was 93, uh, and we lost the grand final to Essendon. And Essendon were favourites at the time, but we actually thought we had a really good chance to win. And we obviously lost uh, by eight goals or so. 94, we blew it. Um, we finished top of the table. Um, we we felt that we were clearly the best team. And we lost in straight sets. That uh, game out at Waverley Park against Geelong with uh, three of their big boys not playing. And they played out of their skin and beat us, which bumped us out of the uh, finals race. So we're pretty hungry in 95. We're very hungry. And we thought, well, yeah, this is our time. We have to win this year. And... You know, everything everything worked out well for us and we lost two games and, and we ended up winning. So, which was, you know, funnily enough, you know, people people ask, oh, what did that feel like? You know, what was it like? And I always describe it as relief because there was that expectation. We were the best team. If we'd lost that year, we would have been the laughing stock almost. Now, not laughing stock's probably a bit harsh, but we were expected to win. And when you're expected to win, you should win. So, um even though you have the joy of winning and all that sort of thing, and it was fantastic after the game. I, people say that, you know, what was it like after the game, the celebrations? And I said, you know, you do that lap of honour and you, the one thing they don't give you is a deck chair because you want to put the deck chair out and just lap it all up, you know, and have the crowd and get a real feel for it. But that initial feeling is, is relief. That year... Uh Probably that feeling, I've spoken to a lot of the Essendon boys from 2000. They said the feeling was, we're just going to win it. We just know we're going to win it. Mm. There was only one period in 95 where you probably doubted yourself because I think you lost back-to-back games in the middle of the season and that came as a shock to everybody, I I bet no more so than you. Yeah, that's right. We lost up at uh, Sydney. uh, I think it was around around seven or something. Yeah. And we're expected to win that. And as you say, you know, we... When we ran out, when we ran down the race, it wasn't a matter of whether we win or lose. It was a matter of how much we win by. And that's all we thought about. We, we never thought about whether we were going to win or not. It was just a matter of how much we were going to win by. And then we lost to Sydney. And I thought, oh, God, that wasn't meant to happen. And then we had the next game against St Kilda at Waverley. I think it was at Waverley. And uh, we thought, oh, it'll be right. We'll, we'll beat St Kilda. And lo and behold, we lost to St Kilda as well. We thought, oh, we better put our fingers out. And then after that, we didn't lose a game. So... It just needed a bit of a clip behind the ears, I think, uh, to keep us alert and making sure that we're um, playing the best of our ability to, to make sure we kept on winning. A reality check probably came at a good time. Well, that's right. It, it came. We won 16 in a row, I think, to uh, once we'd won the grand final. So obviously, um, was that man? It probably was around round seven, round eight ish. Yeah. So um, probably came at a good time. Cooter's been a guest on this program. You had the pleasure of playing alongside him. He had some sort of year in '95. He certainly did. 95 had a great year, and even um, a bit later, he had a couple of ripping years later on. I remember standing, I think I was quite deep one day on, at uh, Princess Park. I think it was in the back pocket, and I was 
playing on someone that I always used to play on and um, they turned around to me and said, did you just see what he did? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know, it's bizarre. He's been doing that all year. It's incredible. Yeah. So that, that sort of highlights when the opposition notice something like that live on field and have the time to turn around to their opposition and say, did you see what he just did? Yeah. You know, he's a pretty special player. What about Diesel? How special was he? He was exceptional. He'll say in his own words that he couldn't run. And by the time he played, well, funny enough, when he was playing... Really, really good footy. Perhaps his best footy. Um, he couldn't train very much because he had uh, sore knees. But for what he could do with his hands and his feet were exceptional. They made up for his foot speed. Um, and I think he's probably fortunate that he was at Carlton when he was because um, we always give him a bit of stick that uh, he used to run down the wing when the ball was coming into our back line, stop on the wing and then run over to the other side because he knew it was going to come out of the back line <laughs> and go to the other side. <laughs> and he'd be there all by himself. So, um, But he was he was super, you know, to play uh, midfield all his career and then have a little spell down the forward pocket and kick five on grand final days, not too bad. Seems remarkable now to think that that was basically, in some ways, the end of an era. Do you think you played your grand final in the preliminary final in 99? Probably. And we had a different team then too. A lot of the more mature players, the older players had left by that stage. We should have won 94. Mm. No doubt about that. Um, we should have won 94. We obviously won 95. Um, <laughs> I nicked off to Brisbane to study vet- veterinary science in 96. You were um, flying fly <laughs> out of that stage, right. weren't you? Exactly. And then 99 was, you know, we, we turned up to the uh, prelim final against Essendon, which that game I think most... Carlton players, uh, Carlton fans will say is the best game outside of grand final win that they've seen. We turned up to that game and the Essendon supporters were lined up outside but trying to buy uh, grand final tickets. Um, so that was a nice motivation for us to try and beat them. And, you know, that that tackle of Brownies goes down in folklore, I suppose, and, and the mm. game uh, result goes down in a, in a pretty significant moment for the Carlton footy club. So we... we Although we, you say we may have played that game, our grand final in that prelim game, funnily enough, when we got to the grand final, that first quarter of the grand final, we actually controlled the ball. We had a lot of it in the first quarter and a half against North Melbourne, but we couldn't score. I think probably halfway through or three quarters of the way through the second quarter, Corey McKernan took a, took a mark, who ironically ended up at Carlton a couple of years later, mm. uh, took a mark for North Melbourne from about 60 and turn around and kick the goal. Neither they or us had scored for you know, a long time before that and it probably deflated us a little bit and, th- and I think you know, that's where the, the mindset came in a little bit to think, oh, Christ, here we go. You know, they're going to get on top of us again. You touched on that period where you were, I think, studying veterinary science in Queensland. Yeah, that's right. And you were flying in, literally you were flying in, fly out to play. How difficult a thing is that to do? Yeah, it's interesting. I, they certainly couldn't do it now. Um, it was a different... Uh, era back then, of course. The um, I, I said to the guys, to to John Elliott and Parco and Cole Kinnear and I think Stephen Goff was CEO at the time, mm. um, and I, I said to them before my exams in '95, I said, "Look, I want to do veterinary science. I want to be a vet." There's four vet schools around Australia, including Melbourne. Um, if I get into those other, any one of those other three, I'm going to go. And so I gave them the heads up very early. And I think they just looked at each other and said, yeah, sure, no worries, <laughs> thinking there's no way I was going to go. Yeah. Sure enough, I didn't get enough marks to get into Melbourne, but I got enough marks to get into Brisbane. And so I went and met with 
uh, Goffey and Cole Kinnear and um, Parko again and, and said, look, I'm in. I want to go. And I, and I said, look, I think the fairest thing is for me to give up footy completely for a year, go up there, concentrate on my studies, get good marks up there to be able to transfer back down to Melbourne because I had to get good marks up in Brisbane to be able to transfer down. And they thought, oh, okay, okay let's, uh, let's give this some consideration. So we left it at that. Jack Elliott rang me uh, the next day and said, Marco, what are you doing? Come into my office. Let's have a chat. And he said, right, no use giving up footy. You might as well keep playing this year. Let's come to an arrangement. We'll rejig your contract. We'll fly you down a few times when you want to play, but you should keep playing game. I said, all right, let's do that. So we rejigged the contract and flew down, as you say. Ended up playing 15 games. Most of those games are in, in holidays. Remembering we had two holidays over the footy season. I, I said to the guys, all right, I'll do this, but when you ring to see whether I want to play, and I say no, that's it. Don't try and convince me or talk me into it or whatever. I'll try and play as much as I can, but if I can't play, I'll just say no and leave it at that. They said, yep, no worries. So Cole would ring me every Tuesday night. Um, Marco, what do you think? Do you want to play? And say yes or no. He said, right, no worries. I'll speak. If it was no, he said, no worries, I'll speak to you next week. If it was yes, he said, radio, well, we need you at, we're playing at the G or Etihad or Perth or wherever. Jump on this plane uh, this time and, and we'll see you there. You know, if I was going to play, I'd train with the uni team that Thursday night. Um, so I'd have one training run for the week. Uh, I lived with a, a mate of mine up in Brisbane. I'd do a five or six K run with him a couple of times a week to try and stay fit. It was unorthodox, Pete. It was very unorthodox and certainly you couldn't do it nowadays. It's a lot more professional game now. Um, but it was just part of a fascinating journey for you in football and that took a turn after you stopped playing and you went to the AFL and we'll talk about that when we come back on the other side of the break. Our final segment coming up with Andrew McKay on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives, back to wrap things up with Andy after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Our final segment with Andrew McKay on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 244 games. Andy, did you go out in your own terms? Had the body had enough? What was the story? Uh, the body was good. I actually won the best and fairest in my last year, um, but my mind was <laughs> done. Um, I was a vet by that stage. I'd been working for a couple of years as a vet. Um, it was a grind. Um, we were on the bottom of the ladder and losing by a lot every week. And I remember my last game, and I think I knew deep down it was my last game. We played North Melbourne and got done by 130, 140 points. Or, yeah, 130 points, 120 points, something. And I was down on my haunches at the end of the game when the siren went and a couple of the North guys came over, um, Steve Owen Arch, and said, well, you know, well done, what are you going to do? And I remember Arch said, because Arch and I used to play on each other a lot, and so it was a uh, fierce rivalry there, but I think some mutual respect there as well. And I'll never forget Arch saying, Mackie, you've got to keep going. I said, mate, I don't think I can. He said, oh, you've got to keep going. I said, I'm not sure that I can, mate. And I, I thought, you know what, I'll give it, give it, um, I'll give it a couple of months, uh, end of the season, went away for a while, tried to work out, well, I still had that fire in the belly, um, and came back oh, six weeks later, and pre-season was just about to start at that stage. Um, and came back to the club and said, you know what, I don't think I can do it, and uh, said I'm going to retire. So then I announced it. I think it was I think it was the first day of pre-season for the 2004 pre-season. 
when you're losing and you've got a young team and a developing team and it's hard to find those Ws, um, it does become a bit of a grind. You didn't need to, um, shall we say, massage the draft with the AFL drafting you in, a reigning best and fairest winner, and you finished up at the AFL. You were on the match review panel at one stage. Yeah, I, uh, when I left uh, Carlton, I can't remember was it that following year or the year after, Adrian Anderson rang me and said, oh, we, we want to change the uh, tribunal system. Can you have a look look at it for us? Adrian done a fair bit of background work and was proposing one way and he said, you know, can you just have a look and see what you think? And so I had a bit of a look at it for him and, you know, it was actually, I thought, you know, it's a pretty good system. We'll keep a lot of players out of the tribunal. You know, won't waste the players' time, won't waste the club's time, won't waste a lot of the AFL's time. And then he said, do you want to get involved? And I said, yeah, all right, I'll get involved. So I ended up being on the match review panel. Um, which was a bit of a thankless task, but I ended up being on there for five years with uh, Swabby and ended up running it for a couple of years. And then I went into a game analysis manager role where I looked at the aesthetics and the safety of the game and got some got a lot of feedback from clubs and stakeholders around, OK, if we change this rule for this reason, what will the game look like and how will you play the game and all that type of thing? And then I'd take that back to the laws of the game committee. And then determine that, and that would largely determine whether we went down a rule change or not. Um, is and, there one recommendation from your point of view at the time that you were involved that is in the game today that you think you're pretty proud of that it changed the way that the game looks? Yeah, or plays? cap on interchange. Yeah, um, you know, Adrian Anderson was a big one for that, and um, it took my initial thought was we probably don't need need it. We might be able to find some other ways to go about it, but we're able to do it in a really controlled manner. It's, it's one thing you can control in the field. There's a lot of other things on the field you actually can't control, but that's one thing you can control from, from afar. So it was a, an easy way to do it, I suppose. And the, and the thought process around that was if you restrict the number of interchanges, because it's all around congestion, around the ball, and congestion was becoming a problem back then, um, as it has been over a number of years again, because um, players adapt um, so congestion was becoming a problem. Interchanges were up to you know, sometimes 150 per game. And so what that does, it allows the players to go and have a rest on the bench, come back on and run at some fantastic top-end speed. But the trouble with that is it makes them get to every contest or a lot more contests, so more players at more contests, um, which creates more congestion. So Adrian's thought process was, well, if we leave them out there for longer then they'll get tired and they won't be able to run to as many contests, so the game will open up a bit. So, And I think that's worked. Um, and then it's a matter of, OK, well, how much um, do you restrict it? And we at, initially we just made it 120 because that was about the average. And we didn't want to upset the game too much, but we just didn't want it getting worse. Um, so we put it at that, and then the plan was to to pull that back in over over the coming years. And I'd left by that stage, but that's what they, they did. And so we get to just about the end of the football journey, but I'm sure one of your proudest moments in footy. Now, uh, Carlton loves nicknames. We all know about Soss, son of Serge. Are you Foa? <laughs> F-O-A, father of Abby? No, I don't think so. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, it was, it's really nice. Um, you know, I never th- ever thought it happened, of course. Um, you know, five, six, seven years ago, and AFLW wasn't even thought of. So um, it may well have been in Gil's eyes, but not in anyone else's. Um, so for Abs to be drafted a father-son pick uh, last year and then to play this year was, was super. And it was, I'll correct you, father-daughter oh, Sorry, God, how am I going? <laughs> father, I've, I've been correcting people for the last five years, but, but <laughs> father-daughter pick. 
Um, so first ever. Yeah, first ever, which is really nice. But, yeah. um, you know, and it was a very quick rise for Abs. She, um, my wife started a team at Paran, our local club, about five years ago, just with Abby's school friends. Um, and so it was really kick and giggle, just have a bit of fun. And they actually ended up being okay. Had a good, a couple of good players and the girls just loved it. You know, they loved tackling and going in hard and getting the ball and getting muddy and all that sort of thing. And they, they, they became infatuated with it almost. They, that was their, one of their social outlets when they were at school studying that, uh, to go and have a kick at the footy, which was awesome. But it was all very, you know, it wasn't serious at all. And, and Abby got invited to go to Sandy last year, uh, two years ago as a bottom age uh, TAC, as it was back then, TAC Cup uh, program, and played bottom age for Sandy. And then last year she played top age for Sandy, and she actually really enjoyed it. She didn't enjoy it so much the first year because it was so different for her. And she really enjoyed it last year, and then all of a sudden she got picked uh, to play um, for uh, Vic Metro. And she did did well, and then she um, got picked in the All-Australian squad and I thought, oh, hang on, something might be happening here. So, And I think that woke her up a little bit. Like, well, maybe I may be able to get into this AFLW thing that uh, Dad started at Carlton a couple of years prior. Um, so, yeah, all of, it happened really quite quickly and then um, for her to get drafted for the daughter and, and then to be able to line up. And it, it was actually probably nicer for me not to be at the club, Pete, to be honest, mm. um, when Abs was playing. Uh, particularly the first game, I could sit back and just watch it as a parent and not have to worry about um, everything else that was going on on match day or, or the boys or whatever. So um, it was really nice that I wasn't at the club when, when Abs was playing and I, I look forward to seeing her play a lot more games yet. It's been a brilliant football journey in all sorts of ways. It's been a pleasure to sit down for an hour and talk to you about it. Congratulations on what you've done in the game and we wish you well for the future. Yeah, thanks very much, Pete. Been a pleasure. Andrew McKay joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives back with another great Australian in sport. Same time next week. Hope you can join us then. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.